to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Lauren and I are so glad to be back with you all today. We had a blast recording the show last week with Ange Schlafly Corey. We discussed the life of the original Problematic Women, Phyllis Schlafly, and the Hulu series, Mrs. America. If you missed the live show, be sure to check it out. I definitely learned a lot about Phil Schlafly and the women's movement. All right, before we get to the show, we did just want to take a second to read an email from one of our awesome listeners and fellow Problematic Women, Isabella Wagner. She wrote in and said, Problematic Women has been a mainstay for me. So thank goodness for you and Lauren and the power of technology to make it possible during this crazy time. Well, thank you so much, Isabella, for listening. We're so glad uh, that you are finding Problematic Women to be something that makes this quarantine life a little bit easier for you. Okay, Lauren, what do we have up on the show today? Up on today's Problematic Women, we talk with Johnny Erickson Tada about life as a quadriplegic, staying positive in the midst of hardship, and the Heritage Foundation's National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. Abby Bird joins us to share her tips on how to stay productive during COVID-19, and Heritage Research Fellow Rachel Gresler talks the state of the economy and America's national debt. And as always, we'll be crowning a Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on iTunes and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. I am joined by Johnny Erickson Tata, author, artist, founder of the multifaceted ministry Johnny and Friends, and a member of the Heritage Foundation's National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. Johnny, thank you so much for being here. Oh, Virginia, it's a joy to be with you and, of course, our listening friends. Thanks for having me on. Oh, so good. Well, you know, as I mentioned, you are a part of the Heritage Foundation's National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. And the commission was really put together for the purpose of protecting both lives and livelihoods as America tries to come out from this pandemic and recover. And one of the things that I think is so powerful and really strategic about the commission is that it includes leaders in the fields of business and government and healthcare, nonprofits, the faith community, just all across the board. So, Johnny, can you tell me a little bit about your role on the commission and why you feel like it's playing such a critical role in our nation right now? Well, I think I was asked to serve as a commissioner on the uh, National Recovery Commission because of my role in disability advocacy. Uh, Yes, I am a Christian. Yes, I have interest in economics and business. But primarily, my contributions are uh, disability concerns, uh, concerns of the medically fragile, vulnerable populations, the elderly. And Virginia, if you think about it, it is these very populations who have been most at risk uh, to this coronavirus. And of course, if we want to safeguard lives and livelihoods, Shouldn't we as Americans be most concerned about safeguarding the health and well-being, the lives and livelihoods of our most uh, uh, fragile populations, including the medically fragile, the elderly, uh, children with disabilities, uh, adults with disabilities, those who are ventilator dependent. I have so many, many uh, friends who are vent dependent quadriplegics for whom it is already difficult to access good health care. So I'm, I'm, I'm representing their voice on the commission. It's been my honor and my privilege. And may I say that Kay James has done a stellar job in uh, moving this commission forward and making certain that our views reach the desks and the hearts of uh, America's decision makers. So I'm glad I can have a part in that. Oh, so glad. Yes, we love Mrs. James at the Heritage Foundation, and we're certainly blessed that she's leading this commission and that she chose you to be on it. What a perfect fit. Uh, I do want to ask you about something uh, that you recently said 
that on a video, which was on your website, you said, in the worst of times, Christians can and should be at their best. And you mentioned that you are a strong believer. And, you know, I, as a Christian myself, I definitely agree with that statement. But, you know, Johnny, that's a lot easier said than done. How do you think we can really be at our best during a global pandemic? Well, I'm thinking of Paul and Silas who sheltered in place. It was an inconvenient place. It was a prison. But nevertheless, they demonstrated contentment and confidence in God. They expressed and demonstrated concern and compassion for the people around them. And so when I look at Paul and Silas uh, sheltering in place in that prison uh, and the way they responded, oh, Virginia, what a great example for all of us as we uh, not only shelter in place right now, but come up and out of this coronavirus season. Um, let's be hopeful. Let's be confident people. And let's, in these worst of times, be the best of followers of Jesus Christ. I know that my husband and I, we have gotten so much more closely connected with our neighbors. Uh, across the street, there lives a secular Jew named Bob. On one side of our house, our neighbor is from Israel. His name is Haim. On the other side of our house next to us is a uh, Muslim from Iran named um, Hoysen Majid. So here's our chance to have a real impact for Christ to our friends and neighbors, checking up on them. When Ken runs to the grocery market, seeing if he can do errands for these people, most of whom are elderly. So there are all kinds of ways we can be at our best, not only um, demonstrating the good news, uh, but also declaring it to our neighbors and friends. But most of all, Virginia, I think we are at our best when we remain hopeful, confident in God and his hold on the future, and also uh, prayerful and expectant. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big, big believer that God permits what he hates to accomplish things that he loves. And that's been my mantra for almost 53 years in this wheelchair. God permits what he hates, this mm -hmm. difficult, paralyzing injury to accomplish something that he loves. And that is, of course, in me, a changed heart and a closer walk with, uh, with my God. So that, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. Wow. What a powerful message and so eloquently said. And I, I do just want to give you the opportunity. You know, we're living in such unique times right now. And I know that there are people listening who might be feeling really discouraged. Maybe they've lost their job or their life savings or even a loved one because of this pandemic. But uh, Johnny, you are a woman who has overcome incredible adversity in your own life. And uh, I remember as a little girl, my mom talking about the amazing woman in the wheelchair who painted with a paintbrush in her mouth and who hadn't allowed tragedy to really stop her from pursuing her dreams and from making a difference in the world. So for those who might not know your story, could you just give us uh, a little glimpse into the life of Johnny Erickson Tata? Well, at 17 years of age, uh, I was growing up on a farm in Maryland. I was ready to head off to college. But right before uh, the fall semester, I went swimming uh, with my sister to the Chesapeake Bay, took a dive into some shallow water, uh, a reckless dive. And when I hit the bottom, I found out real fast how shallow it was. And it snapped my head back, crunched my vertebrae, and severed my spinal cord. And I'm there I am, lying paralyzed, face down in the water, unable to breathe and unable to right myself. Thankfully, my sister Kathy, although she had her back turned to me, a crab bit her toe, and it so startled her that she quickly turned around in the water to look for me and scream, watch out for crabs. But when she turned around in the water, she saw me floating face down about 25 yards away, and that got her attention. <laughs> she came swimming after me, righted me up in the water. I'm spitting, I'm sputtering. And thankfully, I was rescued from drowning, but when the doctors told me I would be paralyzed for the rest of my life without use of my hands or my legs, um, oh, Virginia, I just plummeted into depression. And maybe some of our listening friends, although they might not be quadriplegics like me, we've all had horribly painful circumstances which have plummeted us into discouragement. And uh, I, I cannot say 
uh, even in a nutshell, how I came up and out of that depression. There's no one answer. There's no quick response. But I will say this, uh, and I respect our friends listening who may not share my my faith views. I know you have many listeners of different uh, faith journeys and religious backgrounds. But let me say, someone showed me from the Old Testament a verse in Isaiah, chapter 50, verse 10. For he who walks in darkness, who has not one ray of light, let him trust in the name of the Lord and lean on his God. What great advice, because God had kicked out all the props from underneath me and I had nowhere to lean. And at first I did not want to lean on God because I felt as though he was the one who got me into this awful situation. But I realized I, I had no choice. And so I started, stopped, I stopped asking God why with a clenched fist. And I started asking why with a searching heart. And I leaned heavily on him because I wanted out of the darkness. I, I wanted to come up out of depression and self-pity. And uh, so um, slowly I began to take a step of faith and thank God for what he was doing in my life. I thanked him for small things. I thanked him that my hospital bed was near the window so I could see the trees. I thanked him that I had a supportive family. I thanked him that I could go to occupational therapy. I thanked him that my friends were visiting. I just found many small things, Virginia, to thank him for. And as I exercised that muscle of gratitude, uh, which was really the muscle of my faith, um, it grew stronger. And I began to thank God for bigger things, larger things, greater things. And I think that's when life began to change and my depression began to lift. And I would say to our listeners, uh, no matter what their faith background, we can all look around us and find things for which we can be thankful. And to start mouthing the words of thanks, even though you might not feel it, I think it instructs your heart and it gives your your heart a, a pattern, um, a, a, an avenue, a path to follow. Uh, I think gratitude with the mouth stirs up gratitude in the heart. And so that's good advice, uh, whether, whether you're a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, whoever, good advice for anybody who's feeling discouraged or has lost their job or perhaps lost a loved one during this terrible pandemic. Find things for which you can give thanks, even though they be small. And a spirit of gratitude will eventually help dissipate that discouragement and depression. Johnny, I think we could just end the interview right there, and that would be perfect. <laughs> My goodness. Thank you. Um, just incredibly powerful to hear your journey. Um, and just the thank you for being so vulnerable just in, in sharing what you have walked through um, and, and how the Lord really brought you through that. Um, I do want to ask you, you know, you have done so many incredible things with your life and things that so many people would point to and say, well, that's impossible for a quadriplegic to do. Uh, you're a very, very successful artist. You've written a book and um, there's been films about your life. Could you just speak a little bit to how some of those things kind of came about? I mean, like, when did you discover that you could paint with your mouth? Well, when you can't use your hands, you have to learn how to do what you can with what little you've got left. And at that point, when I was in the hospital, uh, without feet that could walk and hands that could work, my occupational therapist uh, taught me how to write and type holding pencils between my teeth. And of course, once I excelled in doing that as a, as a young artist, a budding artist, I began to express myself uh, on canvas with paint and pastel pencils. And that gained the attention of uh, Barbara Walters, and she interviewed me on New York's Today Show, which went national. And, of course, that message led to uh, the book called Johnny, uh, and that caught the attention of Billy and Ruth Graham. And so I was invited to share my story on multiple crusades. But, but Virginia, to boil it all down, what this did, God, what God was doing, it, his, his purpose wasn't to make me a successful artist or an author. I think God's plan in all of this has been to open up an avenue so that I could share my story with thousands of people with disabilities around the world. And now I head up a, 
organization called Johnny and Friends. We've been working for 40 years uh, until our recent layoffs due to COVID-19. We had 180 employees, now we're down to 113 employees. Uh, and that's been heartbreaking to have to go through those layoffs. But um, it's COVID-19, what can we say? So we're trusting in God anyway. And we run retreats for special needs families in the United States. We'll do nearly 50 uh, this summer, even though some of them might be held uh, remotely uh, via Zoom. Uh, and also we'll hold 50 uh, family retreats for special needs families in developing nations like Cuba and uh, Peru and Thailand and Ukraine and Central America and uh, India. And, and um, these are just wonderful special needs families who are desperate for help and hope. And plus we distribute thousands of wheelchairs and Bibles to needy disabled people around the world. And so honestly, Virginia, I don't know why God allowed my broken neck, but I do know that he has used this wheelchair, my wheelchair, to share his good news with multiple thousands of other people in wheelchairs around the world and, uh, and children with special needs. And to me, that, that is more significant than walking. That's better than having use of my hands to know that God might use my disability to reach thousands of other people with disabilities with his love. What an honor. What a privilege. <laughs> Well, and you certainly have reached so many lives, and uh, it's incredible to to visit your your website, Johnny and Friends, and just see all the photos of the children that you've worked with, and just so many uh, smiles, and you can tell just really, really grateful hearts as they've they've met you, and that they've kind of discovered, oh, there's so many other people. Uh, out there like me who are are walking through life and taking this journey. And you have been such a powerful advocate uh, for people with disabilities. And in 1988, President Ronald Reagan appointed you to the National Council on Disability. And you advocated for the passage of, of uh, the America, Americans with Disability Act. Uh, could you just speak a little bit to that and explain kind of how that came about uh, and the work that you did on that council? Well, first, let me say that um, it was a delight to work with President Ronald Reagan and his team. He was uh, a strong advocate of the ADA. Um, it passed, as you know, in Congress. And in 1990, uh, the bill was signed into law by President Bush. And um, I, I must tell you a quick story, Virginia. I was with the National Council on Disability, all 15 council members on the South Lawn of the White House the day that President Bush signed it into law. And afterward, we went back to a hotel for a small reception, our council members and families. And our executive director, his name was Paul Hearn uh, at that time. He was a, a man with osteogenesis imperfecta. Uh, he had formerly served as the director of the Dole Foundation and, and had served on many disability rights organizations. But he was our executive director at that point. And real quickly, he said, let's have a toast. And so we watched Paul wheel himself up front and he took his glass of champagne and he fingered and he said this. He said, this is a great civil rights piece of legislation. This is landmark. This means that discriminatory policies that prevent qualified people with disabilities from finding jobs, th those will be removed. So, so there'll be greater access um, to, to more jobs for qualified people with disabilities. A and secondly, this law is great in that um, public accommodations will have more access. This means you won't have to wheel through the kitchen alley to the back door into the kitchen to get to your dining room table. That's a good thing. So this is great. This law is good. And thirdly, this law is good in that one day we will see mechanical lifts on buses across the country. This is great. This is a good law. But then he added, but this law will not change the employer's heart. This law will not change the heart of the maitre d' at that restaurant. And it certainly won't change the heart of the bus driver. And then he lifted his glass and said, here's to changed hearts. Wow. I know, honestly, I started weeping, Virginia, because no amount of civil rights legislation, no amount of state proclamations, no amount of tightened regulations on curb cuts and whatnot, th these things will not change people's hearts. Yes, they'll create access. Yes, more education and awareness raising. But th th it's not going to change a person's heart. And I think that's why we who... 
follow Jesus Christ and the model he gave us um, of the way we live with our neighbors, you know, love each other as, as you love God. Um, it, that is what's going to change hearts. That's the good news that brings about a transformation in someone's heart. So my time on the council was, uh, was so warm and memorable. Um, every time I have a friend come to visit my husband and me here in Southern California, the first thing we plan is, oh, let's go to the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a wonderful place. And, you know, and, and it's wonderful to see that there's a, there's a display there about the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I always have a sense of, of warm uh, pride in having us played a small, small part in it all. But honestly, um, greater access is achieved when people experience changed hearts because of the love of God. I, I think you'd agree with that. I would. I definitely do. Well, thank you for sharing that story. Those are those are such powerful moments, and it's so important to retell those stories because those are the kinds of things that can easily get lost in history. Um, and wow, just pretty incredible. And in, in addition to being such an advocate for people with disabilities, you've also become a, a very strong voice for the unborn. You say very, very openly that you believe that life begins at conception. Uh, where, where did you kind of gain uh, your, your own pro-life conviction? To be quite honest, Virginia, when I was in high school back in the 60s, I saw the very poor choices that some classmates made, young girls who decided to opt for an abortion. And even after it became legal in 1973, and I thought to myself then, back in 1973, oh my goodness, um, th this decision to, which, which seems to, well, according to the chief justices back then, their decision seemed to imply that in the U.S. Constitution, there was an inherent right to privacy. So I'm thinking to myself, then if people think they have the right to kill a life inside of them, then eventually, how will that play out? What are the logical consequences of such a, a Supreme Court decision? Well, of course, in 1982, um, a child with Down syndrome was starved to death in the state of Indiana because both the hospital and the parents uh, felt that uh, the state had the right to, to starve to death that child uh, by the consent of the mother and father. And although that was overruled by the Supreme state Supreme Court, again, it was another indication of what this Supreme Court decision in 73, how it would pan out. And I knew right then that the lives of millions of Americans with disabilities, medically fragile, the elderly, and of course we see it played out now with the a growing premise that you are better off dead than disabled. So we see, uh, we, we see uh, assisted death laws in nine jurisdictions, states around the US. And, and, and all, it all started because of a decision to grant a woman the right to kill that child in her womb. And we are feeling the horrible repercussions of that uh, lamented decision back in 1973. So what gripped me, uh, Virginia, was knowing that each life is created in the image of God, no matter if that life is a preborn child or a, a born an infant with uh, significant multiple disabilities, whether that life is someone who's in a coma or medically fragile, or the life is that life is someone who is extremely elderly. Um, all life is value. All life is sacred. We all are image bearers of our great Creator God. Um, and what a woeful decision it was when the Supreme Court justices in 1973 ignored that uh, timeless truth that um, all life is to be regarded sacred. So, uh, so I get my passion from from the word of God, from uh, the fact that I believe in, the, in a great creator God on whose imprint I bear, but I also, uh, my passion is also energized to help reverse that 1973 decision because it has terrible repercussions on every level of society and on every age group of our population. 
Oh, and we certainly thank you just for the work that you are doing in that field. And I think it's so powerful for someone like yourself to be able to speak to that issue uh, and to sit in your wheelchair and to tell, you know, lawmakers, to tell citizens across the world, really, that life in, in any stage and uh, however you're living, it has that it has value that uh, that's so incredibly powerful. Mm. Now, I do want to ask you, you know, you have just never slowed down. <laughs> You've had this uh, amazing career of just doing all of these things in, in government and with your own organization. What's next for you? Uh, what are kind of other aspirations or, or things that, that you hope to accomplish? Well, I'm glad you're giving me an opportunity to say this because uh, I know that I am heavily investing myself in the next new generation. Um, in fact, uh, at our ministry, we have the Christian Institute on Disability, which provides online training, plus hands-on internships for young people, uh, students mainly, who are either occupational therapists, nursing students, uh, PT uh, students, or uh, students in social work, um, recreational therapy, whatever, we, social, special education. We, we are excited to welcome interns to our International Disability Center where they practice uh, their faith with sleeves rolled up. And we send them off to a week at any one of our 50 family retreats or overseas. They help us deliver wheelchairs. They work in orphanages that we partner with in China and in Cuba, and in South America, and in Southeast Asia. Um, we give them a real good handle on the biblical worldview on disability, that one is not better off dead than disabled, but if anything, God's power shows up best in your life when you have a disability that forces you to depend on him. So I'm going to put a shout out for any of your young listeners, I would encourage you to visit our website and go to our education and training tab and look up our internship opportunities for 2021 and join us in an adventure to serve people with disabilities around the world. That, that's my passion right now, Virginia, just passing the torch to the next new generation and getting them excited about uh, demonstrating um, true heartfelt compassion to people with disabilities and their families. Oh, that's so wonderful. We'll be sure to put a link uh, to your website in our show notes so that all of our listeners can go and find that and learn more about those opportunities. And Johnny, we just really thank you so much for your time today. We just so appreciate all your insight and all the work that you're doing on the commission and um, within the pro-life movement and for those with disabilities. It's just incredible to hear all of the accomplishments that you have had and really uh, everything that the Lord has done through you. And I want to thank you, Virginia, and of course, your listeners, most of whom no doubt hold a conservative worldview. And uh, I, I thank you for remembering the needs of people with disabilities. That's so critical uh, to have a, a compassionate conservatism, as it were, uh, and uh, lift up the, the needy, the vulnerable, the weak, uh, the elderly, of course, the preborn children with disabilities and infants uh, with disabilities. So thank your listeners. I'm so grateful to them for that compassionate conservatism that they hold fast to their worldview. Mm, and we thank you, Johnny. God bless you. Here at The Daily Signal, your safety is of the utmost importance to us. We want to make sure you have the best information on how you can protect yourself and your family from the coronavirus. Here's an important message from Dr. Deborah Burks, head of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, explaining how communities across America are successfully flattening the curve. I think all of you can see from the data that is coming out from phones moving around that there are areas of the countries that are really following this guidelines. The people are staying home. They're not grouping together. Of course, this does mean that you can't have parties for 10 people even. You need to really stay home, really ensure you're following the guidelines. And when we see people are doing that, like in California and Washington, we're seeing that they haven't had these large outbreaks. So that's what you're preventing. We know that can happen. And we really appreciate each and every one of you for what you have done. And we're asking you to do it for another 30 days. 
With unemployment rates expected to hit 16 to 20 percent by summer, finding a job after graduation from college seems as daunting as ever. To discuss some tips and tricks on where to be searching and how to stand out from the crowd, we have Abby Bird on the program today. Welcome, Abby. Hi, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. Abby is the Recruitment and Training Coordinator here at the Heritage Foundation. Abby, what's your story? How did you get to the job that you have today? That's a great question, Lauren. And I think that it's uh, very much uh, standard or a DC sort of things. It kind of happened a little bit unexpectedly. Um, I actually went to school at, uh, in Dallas, University of Dallas, and um, have been hoping to move to DC and have that that dream job, but really came to found, find that I needed to you know, reach out to people and kind of begin that process just very organically and doing a lot of networking. So I can really speak to networking remotely and kind of having to start those conversations while you're not able to come in for an in-person interview. So I've been at Heritage for about four years now, which has absolutely been fantastic to really understand the lay of the land, especially for hiring in D.C. and throughout the conservative movement. Abby, you sent me some questions that you get from college students, so I just want to go ahead and dive right in. What are they supposed to be doing about finding internships for the summer when most companies and organizations are working remote? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I know that many organizations are handling this different. Some of them are still in the process of uh, making decisions about summer internships and summer jobs. So if you already have an internship locked in for the summer, just make sure you're following up with your point of contact for that organization. Uh, if you're still searching, um, don't be don't be too worried. You know, there are still a lot of organizations which are planning to do remote internships or, you know, getting creative in how you reach out to your, your mentors and your different contacts. I think one of the best things you can do is to let people know you're looking. So often, and I work with a lot of different college groups around D.C. and and throughout the country, honestly, and one thing we hear is, you know, I've been looking and I can't find anything, Um, and then I'm looking at my list of open internships that I have contacts to, and I'm thinking, wow, I wish you had had let me know earlier that you were job searching or looking for an internship because um, we can't help you if we don't know you're looking. I think it's one of the best resources. You talk to your college counseling office um, for jobs, your different career centers. If you have mentors or professors who you have especially strong relationships with who can you know, really speak to you, help connect you with their network, those are really great resources. I know Heritage, is. Um, we have a really wonderful resource that I get to work on called the Job Bank. And this is an email list that we put together and send out twice a week, actually. So it's a lot of, a lot of good openings that are new and current. And it's open jobs and internships, both in D.C. and then throughout the conservative movement around the country. And they're updating those regularly as they're making decisions about internships and whatnot. Um, so I just offer that some encouragement that there are positions that are still being posted, even you know whether it's on the Hill or with you know another conservative nonprofit. So if someone's looking for an internship and unfortunately just can't find one this summer, what are some of the best summer jobs that students and young professionals can take to strengthen their resume? That's a great question. That's something we've definitely been hearing a lot of, just genuine curiosity, because you don't want this summer to be um, you know, a blank slate on your, on your resume. Some things just to bear in mind is what are you thinking you want to do long term? If you're thinking um, you want to work on the Hill, you want to work in policy, you want to work in you know, the administration, you want to work for a nonprofit, beginning to put down on paper some of the important skill sets that would be relevant in each of those different career paths. Um, and something just to bear in mind is that one of the most relevant <laughs> relevant skills is customer service. And that can be anything from, you know, um, phone banks, you know, learning how to have good phone etiquette, uh, working in a customer service, whether it's in retail or, you know, working for a local company that maybe allows you to be remote as well. Um, I would just really think this is your summer to be creative. So look for jobs that will allow you to leverage certain skill sets rather than looking for the description itself. Um, I think it's really how you learn how to talk about what you've done. That's actually the most relevant part of how you can use that job or the summer internship to build towards the job or career you want after graduation. I love that. This is the summer to be creative. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, in many, many ways, whether you're finding new hobbies that you didn't know you have um, or a new interest that you had never really explored before. I think this is a great time also to study people who you really admired, whether it's, you know, a different problematic woman. I know there's lots of great movies and books out there. Just spending some time really learning what you love and, and giving credence to that and, and figuring out how you can put that into application for your job search as well. So with most companies and organizations being remote, there's not one physical location where the staff are gathering. How can you find a contact and keep contact with an organization that you're hoping to get an internship or a job from? Yes, this is when some uh, online sleuthing will be very helpful. Um, and I think this is important, whether you're going in for an in-person interview or whether you're going to be hopping on a phone call with someone. Just pull up in your LinkedIn, see and look up the person who will be interviewing you. This is actually a really great resource just to know 
um, you know, what people might be in your network or better yet, if you're interested in working for a certain organization or company or, you know, office, um, looking up that office on LinkedIn can actually help you understand any mutual connections you might have. And it's very, it's very honest and it's very reasonable to then reach out to those mutual contacts and say, hey, you know, I'm really I'm searching for an internship this summer. I'm looking for a job. And I notice that you may have a contact or maybe you even know someone who works for that organization. And just reaching out very honestly and asking, could you give me some ideas of what your experience has been like, things that I should bear in mind if I would like to work for this organization one day, um, or just some pointers on how I can best prepare. That opens that conversation up to maybe mature into you know, a phone call. I know we're doing a lot of um, digital phone uh, coffee chats these days. So you know, asking for kind of an informational interview is a great first step in just making that that interest known. Um, and you never know how much people are able to really help until you ask. And I think that's one of the really great things about DC. And I've heard this heard this from so many interns. I've been a beneficiary of this myself. Is that people are very willing to help, um, but we don't know if you need help until you ask. So just please reach out to those contacts, make the ask, and just you know let us know how we can help you because we really do. We really want to help. You mentioned digital coffee meetings, and I think a lot of folks are even now doing interviews online. What tips do you have to come across as really professional while interfacing with folks over a video call? Well, this is one of my favorite things to talk about um, because I've had to you know, experience this myself when I was living in Texas and trying to interview for jobs in D.C. is that obviously you're going to be remote. Um, one of my first uh, best practices is you have all the time to set up the environment and the situation that will make you most at ease when you're doing this interview, right? So typically when you're going in for an in-person interview, you have to you know, go into another space that you've never been before. You're navigating um, perhaps DC traffic if you have to take the metro or even if it's super hot and you show up a little bit sweaty. You know, these are things that normally you'd have to consider. But for this situation, if you're doing a remote interview or a remote uh, you know, phone call interview, you have a lot more of an opportunity to have control over that environment that will really help you be the most at ease and the most professional. So things I always recommend is if you're doing a phone interview, let's just start there. Don't go on a walk outside. <laughs> I know that that's very tempting when you've been cooped up inside perhaps is to you know, take that time to stretch your legs out. Um, but just bear in mind that the person on the other end of that phone call will hear all the background noise if you live by a busy road. Um, they're gonna hear all that. If your neighbors are doing lawn work or they have a dog, all that stuff is gonna come through in your phone interview. And the interviewer is going to make note that you're going on a walk. So how um, how seriously are you really taking this interview um, not to find a quiet space to really um, to give you know, honor to that interview and that other person's time as well? Um, so then jumping to the video interview, that's a whole other level of, you know, thinking through what the other person is going to be seeing. Um, and this may sound kind of silly, but really think about um, pulling open that, that camera on your computer or on your phone and see, like practicing in front of the open camera. So you can see what you look like. You can notice how maybe you, you gesture a lot. And so how do you kind of you present yourself well? Also thinking about things like your background. Um, are you in front of you know, a funny movie poster on your wall? Nothing's wrong with that. It's always good to know people have you know, good personalities and interests outside the workplace, but just bear in mind how all those things are gonna come through on that camera screen. Um, so practice what you're gonna be saying, what the setup is gonna look like. Um, the first time I ever did an interview, I took so much time, I even you know, arranged the books in the bookshelf behind me just to make sure it all looked really polished and really, you know, um, really perfect. Um, I would even just say, if you can find a blank wall in your house, that's a great way to start. But think about things such as noise. If you have roommates, um, communicating that you're in an interview will be really helpful so you're not kind of flinching as you hear a noise. Um, uh, those sorts of things just to bear in mind. There's always the great question of what do you wear? You know, <laughs> you're not going into the office. Can I wear, you know, can I wear sweatpants? Can I wear leggings? You know, I'm, I'm professionally dressed with a blazer on top kind of thing. Um, I think as long as you are professional and you can conduct yourself well, you know, <laughs> be, pay attention to how you come across. But there's no hard and fast rule. But you should be dressed as professionally as you would be, though, if you were going in for an interview. So this isn't the time to show, you know, school spirit and wear a college hoodie. Really think about the way that you're coming through. So those are some of my, my best practices, but hopefully that's helpful. Thanks, Abby. That is so helpful. If there's any job seekers or upcoming graduates, how can they get in touch with you and Heritage's resources? Great question, Lauren. Like I said, we have the Heritage Job Bank, which is available. You can access that right through the Heritage website. You just go in and look up Job Bank, and it will take you right to our landing page. There's my my information, my email address is there. But most importantly is our listserv. So you're able to sign up and submit your resume through that portal. And the great benefit of that is that we're able then to help 
you know, put you in touch with the job openings that we have through this email list, but we're also better aware of who's looking. So we see some new resumes come in saying, oh my goodness, this person has an interest in doing media. And we know of another organization or maybe Heritage itself that's looking for someone in that field. We're able to help kind of make that match. In a way, we're kind of uh, like a you know, professional dating service trying to make the best fits. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Abby. Thank you so much, Lauren. It is so easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle, especially right now. So if you're looking for a great way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. I co-host the show with my colleagues, Rachel Del Judas, Kate Trinko, and Rob Louie, to bring you all interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast available every weekday morning. I am joined by Rachel Gresler, Research Fellow in Economics, Budget, and Entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. Rachel, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Virginia. Well, today we're talking about our economy and what are some of those variables that we're seeing right now in the economy and what some of those effects are of COVID-19. And quite frankly, I really wish that this could be a cheerier conversation, but I'm really glad that uh, that you can join us today and share a little bit of your expertise on this subject and just give us a glimpse into America's economy now and what it might look like in the future. So let's begin by talking about unemployment. You wrote in a recent article, that unemployment rates are close to 20%. 20%, that's unbelievable. Just in the past four weeks, we've seen about 26 million Americans apply for unemployment benefits. Now, the government's response to these high numbers has been to not only provide the normal unemployment benefits to Americans, but also to give all recipients an additional $600 a week. What was the rationale behind not only offering those unemployment benefits, but tacking on that additional $600? Well, in a normal situation, the unemployment program, it doesn't cover everybody. It doesn't cover people like the self-employed or part-time workers or gig economy workers. And it also only provides about 50% of people's previous earnings. You also have to be fired from a job. You can't quit or choose to to leave your job. Um, But under these unusual circumstances, when businesses were forced to shut their doors, and workers lost their job through no fault of their own, tens of millions of workers, Congress wanted to do something to bridge the gap in a better way so that we could give people a higher portion of their earnings so that they could maintain their living standard, pay their bills, and then be able to be ready to come back to work as soon as it's safe to reopen businesses. So the goal there was to try and get people closer to what they had previously gotten from their paychecks in the form of an unemployment insurance check. The problem there was they just said, well, let's do $600 for everybody because for somebody who makes about the average, this would help bring them up to 100%. But the reality is a majority of Americans will be getting more from unemployment insurance than they would from their normal paycheck. And that creates a lot of bad incentives, including ones that go against the grain and are going to defeat the funds and the programs that Congress has set up that do try to keep people employed. So let's talk more about that, because you wrote that the extra $600 a week could increase unemployment benefit claims by $13.9 million and reduce the nation's output by up to $1.49 trillion between May and September. Can you just kind of explain this domino effect a little bit more? Yes. So uh, my colleague Drew Gontrowski and I have a report coming out today, and we use some modeling in the Center for Data Analysis to look at what the impact would be considering that more people will file for unemployment insurance benefits because more people are eligible to obtain them. And they will also tend to be on them for longer because they're making a higher portion of their earnings than they otherwise would have. And so we said, we see this as being really problematic and we want policymakers to know what the implications will be. So we ran it through our labor models and found that the total amount of unemployed could peak at about an extra 14 million people in about May. And that as a result of people not working and staying at home instead of coming back when they're able to otherwise, that the output will decline by somewhere between 955 billion and 1.5 trillion between May and September. And we used a lot of economic research um, elasticities to model this, but we're starting to see the real world implications of it from businesses that are reporting 
that they've had to close their doors, even though they want to be able to stay open and provide things to people like first responders, or maybe it's restaurants in some of those states now that are allowed to start reopening and they aren't able to get their workers to come back because some of them might be making 50% more on unemployment than they would if they went back to work. You know, even just for the median earner, they can make an extra $2,300 over four months of unemployment compared to being employed. And this is particularly true for the lower that you go down the income scale. You know, somebody who's at about the 25th percentile of earnings would get an extra $5,000 over this four-month period that the additional benefits are available. And so clearly it's in their financial incentive to not come back to work once their employer says, we'd like to rehire you. And that's going to create all sorts of problems in terms of not being able to get the economy regoing again once it's safe to do so. Rachel, you're saying that if, let's say, I work uh, as a receptionist at maybe an an auto part shop or something like that, uh, and I go to my employer and I say, I feel unsafe working right now during the pandemic, then I can quit, but I can still, under the CARES Act, receive unemployment, uh, the regular unemployment benefits, plus that $600, and probably be making even more than I would be making from my employer. That's exactly right. Under this new eligibility criteria, it really is more in workers' hands to decide whether or not they're going to keep working or to file for unemployment insurance. And say you're that receptionist, maybe making $600 per week coming into the office, you would be making $900 per week from unemployment. And those additional benefits are available until July 31st. So there's going to be a big incentive for people to not go back to work until at least July 31st. And we certainly hope that Congress doesn't extend those benefits beyond July 31st. But what about the Paycheck Protection Act? Because my understanding um, of the Paycheck Protection Act was that it was really put in place in order to to keep employees attached to their employer so that now uh, employers could, could keep paying their staff and we wouldn't end up in a situation where so many people were filing for unemployment. Yes, and that was exactly the goal of the Paycheck Protection Program. Was It's aimed at smaller businesses, but it's a resource for them to be able to keep all their workers on their paychecks, even if they're not actually coming into work or maybe they're only doing a few hours from home, to keep those connections so that workers don't lose their health insurance and that when it's able to get things up and running again, everybody will be in place and able to resume more quickly. But the problem is, is that these are kind of competing with one another now. And so we've heard cases of a spa owner in Washington state who she went out and got a paycheck protection program loan. And she was announcing it to all of her employees on one of these Zoom calls. And they got angry with her. And they thought that she was taking something away from them by wanting them to remain employed and get their usual paychecks because they could have gotten more from unemployment insurance. And similarly, you know, a wood mill in Arkansas, they polled their workers and said, would you rather to keep coming into work and keep your paychecks or do you want the unemployment insurance? Because they had already heard from among the ranks that a lot of people didn't really want to keep working. And they decided that they were going to lay off half of the people at one of those plants because they didn't want to have that animosity in the workplace of people thinking, I'd rather be at home and collecting these benefits. So what should Congress have done differently? How could the Paycheck Protection Act had been implemented in a way that it actually really was helping small businesses instead of hurting them? It was really an easy fix, and this was something that a group of senators provided an amendment for that just would have said the total amount of unemployment benefits that you get cannot exceed what you were previously getting in your paycheck. This is very common sense, but there was pushback against that. Some people said it would make it harder to implement, but the reality is the states already have formulas, whether it's 50% or whatever it is, and so to just say that that new formula is going to be capped at 100% would not have been that much more um administratively burdensome to implement. And so it certainly would have helped prevent these situations where workers are being incentivized to quit, employers are being incentivized to lay workers off instead of go through the application process of getting a loan, which were difficult to do. And we know the money did run out there at one point. And so it's an easy fix. And hopefully Congress will still be looking at this and consider putting that fix into place. 
So let's talk about the long-term economic impacts from COVID-19 and these really generous unemployment benefits. Let's say we get to July or August and businesses across America are given the green light to reopen. Are you worried uh, that businesses are going to face challenges of actually getting employees uh, to come back to work and that it's going to be really challenging to actually get Americans off of unemployment? I think it is, especially before July 31st when this additional $600 per week runs out. And unfortunately, it's going to be hardest to get those people back in the industries that have been hardest hurt, like restaurants, hotels, um, tourism and travel, because then these tend to be the lower paid workers. And they are the ones who take home the biggest benefit by this additional $600 per week coming through to them. And, you know, in some ways, we can't fault them if they're able to collect more money from unemployment and save that up. That makes sense for them individually. But it might not actually make sense in the long term also, because we know that the longer people are unemployed, the lower their opportunities and incomes are in the future. But also just in the short term, in terms of getting the economy going again, and having us be productive and in particular being able to meet some of the needs. We've already seen supply shortages in certain companies that are not able to deliver things or get get made what's needed to be made as quickly as possible to meet the demands from COVID-19. And so that's going to be an increasing fear going forward, especially as this is going to remain an issue into the fall flu season. Um, We want to have the companies be prepared to be able to respond to COVID-19 in the ways that we need them to. Yeah. Uh, And one of the other issues that we're hearing a lot about in the news right now is state bailouts. (laughs) And there's a great deal of controversy here. Is there a world where the federal government should consider bailing some states out? Not a bailout. There's definitely a role for the federal government to provide help for COVID-19 related expenses. And we've already seen an unprecedented amount of money go towards that. And the federal government is covering almost all the health care costs. They've provided $150 billion in direct grants to the states, up to $500 billion in new lending that is unprecedented coming from the Federal Reserve. But what the states are asking for now is unrestricted funds to use for whatever purpose they want, essentially, including if their revenues have gone down, which is something that states are supposed to plan for, and that's why they have rainy day funds, and also covering things like pension obligations that they haven't funded for decades. Illinois sent a letter to Congress asking for $40 billion, including $10 billion to cover their unfunded pension obligations. That has nothing to do with COVID-19. And so there is not a need and there's no real excuse that the federal government would bail out states. That just sets a terrible precedent going forward that you're going to penalize states who have acted in a responsible way fiscally and reward those who have been reckless. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that states maybe should consider declaring bankruptcy if they really need to. His exact words were, I would certainly be in favor of allowing states to use the bankruptcy route. Uh, And now McConnell has received a lot of backlash from this (laughs) statement. Do you think that the bankruptcy route uh, is something that some states might need to consider? Well, I think the important takeaway behind Senator McConnell's statement is that the federal government's not responsible for states' budgets. And so to the extent that there have been states like Illinois or New York coming and saying, we absolutely need you to give us this money or we're not going to be able to operate, that's not true. You don't get into a bankruptcy-like situation unless you have had decades worth of fiscal mismanagement. Um, The issue of bankruptcy itself The states are actually not allowed to declare bankruptcy right now. States can allow their cities or the municipalities to declare bankruptcy. Um, But going forward, this is an issue that will remain something for Congress and the states to consider because the reality is there are some states that prior to COVID-19 were already in a situation where they're pretty rapidly approaching insolvency. And Illinois is the best example of that. You know, I really don't see a way forward for that state to either raise taxes enough or cut services enough that they will be able to pay their debts and to fulfill their pension obligations. And so something will have to be done there. And whether or not that's a bankruptcy type situation, or if the state sits down and negotiates with its debtors and with its public employees, something will have to be done. But I think that the issue of COVID-19, that in and of itself 
would not cause a state to become insolvent. And I think that's the point that was trying to be made here is that we will help you with the expenses related to this health pandemic, but we're not going to cover those things that are your own responsibility to budget for. I see. That makes sense. Well, speaking of debt, (laughs) America's national debt now uh, is over $24 trillion. Last time I checked, Uh, that is higher than it's ever been before. And frankly, a number that's just, it's really hard to wrap your mind around. Our federal government is spending a lot of money right now on these various kind of stimulus packages. Where is this money coming from? It's coming from you and me in the future, from our children, from you know anybody that's working today on out into how many years, we don't know because we don't know when our debt becomes unsustainable. Wow. You know, looking back decades ago, we would have said, how could we ever get over $23 trillion in debt and have a single year in which we have $4 trillion in debt. Like that's not possible. And yet it seems like it's possible now. And the problem is you just don't know when these debt crises hit. You know, Puerto Rico didn't anticipate the timing of when theirs did, Greece, other countries. And when you get to the situation where creditors just decide that they're not going to lend to you anymore at an unreasonable rate, that's when you don't have time to make the more rational decisions to pare back in certain expenses um, that you otherwise would have been able to if you acted sooner. We're already at a situation in the U.S. where each household in America owns about $187,000 worth of America's debt. And that was before COVID-19. And now we've added on about another $27,000 per household. So this is clearly an unsustainable level and a huge burden for future generations. Is it possible to actually pay off that much debt? <laughs> we will see. It depends how, you know, it's it's possible. Um, you know, you have to do it over time. It's going to take a level of fiscal restraint that we've never seen before. What we don't want to get to is a situation where you have enormous tax rates that lead to a smaller economy, and then it results in a downward spiral, and you are more likely to face a bankruptcy-type situation or having the Fed need to print its way out of debt, and that's certainly not something that we want it to come to. Yeah. So what does need to happen next? I mean, how can we come out of the coronavirus situation and really ensure that, like you say, that we're leaving our our kids and our grandkids a, a prosperous America that has, you know, the same opportunities that you and I have enjoyed? Mm-hmm. Well, I think starting with the current crisis is evaluating what's been done to date and how has it worked or not worked. There's just constant urged by Congress to pass more and more stimulus bills to try and have more assistance and aid and relief. And yet we don't even know. Some of the money hasn't gone out the door and we don't know what the impact has been. We don't know what it's going to be like as states start reopening their economy. So I would say the first thing is to put a hold, unless it's an absolute immediate need directly related to COVID-19, we shouldn't be considering spending more money yet. We need to kind of wait and see and hope that things will start reopening and rebounding. And then going forward, you know, just as any time when a household would run out of its rainy day funds or have to take on debt, you have to budget in the future to account for that. You have to eventually pay that back. And unfortunately, the U.S. has not ever been paying things back. It's like we have an interest only mortgage and we just keep increasing that mortgage every single year and never paying anything down. So we actually have a proposal at the Heritage Foundation called the Blueprint for Balance that we've put out each year. And we show how you could actually start balancing our annual budget within 10 years and get to a more sustainable pathway going forward. Wow. Well, we'll be sure to, to link the Blueprint for Balance in our show notes so our audience can check that out. But Rachel, we really appreciate your time today and your expertise on this subject. Thanks so much, Virginia. All right, now stay tuned for the crowning of our Problematic Woman of the Week and our weekly Twitter question. If you're tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at heritage.org. It is now my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman. This week's is 
Johnny Erickson Tata, you know, her life is such an encouragement. And we are especially thankful for all of her wisdom right now as she serves on the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. I was so incredibly struck by my conversation with her and so encouraged by it. I love it. It was such a great interview. Even though I've already listened to it once, I think I'm going to go listen to it again. (laughs) Can't get enough of her. All right. Now on to our Twitter question. Well, so Lauren, some sad news. I'm so sorry for you. Unfortunately, you lost your cat this week. So to all of our listeners, we want to do something to cheer Lauren up. So we want to see your pets. This week's Twitter question is, what has your pet done during COVID-19 to make you laugh? We want to hear the funny stories, the little incidents, the weird things that they've done, and bonus points if you tweet out photos with those stories. And we will be sure to read those tweets right here on the show. And that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Stay healthy, and you all have a wonderful week and a great weekend. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.